Kia ora, everyone. Uh, I'm Marilyn Garson. I'm a co-founder of Alternative Jewish Voices, and I welcome everyone from New Zealand and Australia who has come to Sunday Brunch with Michael Link, uh, the outgoing Special Rapporteur on Palestinian Rights at the UN. We're here to say thank you for the work and the dedication. A bit of housekeeping first. Uh, our expected length this morning is between 60 and 75 minutes. I want to say particular thanks to Neil and Carol who are working behind the scenes this morning and to everyone who has helped to promote this event through some really busy days. Um, after Michael Link speaks, there'll be time for questions. We're not using the chat this morning, so please look for the little Q&A icon on the bottom of your screen to write your questions. I think that's it. Yala, let's begin. It's my great pleasure to welcome and introduce Michael Link. He and I have become friends over the past five years or so, and technically through our siblings, we go back another half century to Halifax. Michael Link is an associate professor of law, and in 2016, he was appointed as special rapporteur for a six-year term. He has co-authored a book with Richard Falk about the role and the experience, and that will come out later this year. We see the special rapporteur prominently through his formal reports to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Michael Link's written voice has greatly influenced me and I'm sure many others here. The method of his reports felt very intentional, culminating in his final high voltage report on Israel as an apartheid regime. Although the formal audience for his reports may have been diplomatic, I thought he also did several things for the rest of us. First, he grounded every issue in law, treaty, resolution, and our inalienable rights as equal human beings. And then he hammered on the exceptionalism of this occupation. And he wrote that with a deeply felt, articulate outrage. In both of those ways, his reports gave us resources, enabling us as non-lawyers to speak about the law, and giving authoritative voice to our indignation. And third, he always made clear that the law has not failed Palestine. Rather, the law has never been tried. Our governments have not lived up to their legal obligations. That puts the onus on us in our countries to lead our governments to action. So his reports gave us a real path a set of steps to end this awful status quo. We're here to say thank you for the quality of those resources, for your tireless work, and for the grace that you have shown under such pressure. But mostly we are here to listen, so I will stop. I will though ask you please to begin with a better explanation of the special rapporteur's role. I have mentioned the reports, but what else? Sure. Thank you very much, all of you, for the uh, for the invitation to participate uh, in this today. It's a it's a great pleasure to be able to do so. Um, I spent two wonderful months about 15 years ago as part of my sabbatical in Wellington, uh, teaching a course on international labor law at the uh, at the law school um, at the university. 
Um, my kids were very small at that time. Uh, and I, always, I remember with great delight how uh, their time at the daycare and at the, uh, the school in Tiaro, um, by the end of the two months, they had very distinct New Zealand accents, which I'm sad to say they've, uh, they've since, since lost. Um, uh, Marilyn uh, is someone I've known uh, for the last five years, but uh, I recall meeting her, um, as she said, half a century ago. Uh, because I knew her older sister going through uh, grade school. We both come from Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the eastern uh, coast of, uh, of Canada. In terms of being a special rapporteur, I'm glad you've asked that because it's something I always want to begin my, con my conversations with people about. Um, the United Nations human rights system about 20 or 25 years ago uh, began to set up uh, special rapporteurs uh, on human rights issues, uh, mostly with global mandates. Um, and it's now become a part of what is called uh, the United Nations Special Procedures. And it's an integral part of the UN human rights system. Um, there are about 55 or so special rapporteurs. Um, the bulk of them do have these global mandates, a special rapporteur with respect to torture, the spe special rapporteur with respect to food security, the special rapporteur on the right to housing, the special rapporteur on the right to water and so on. But there are about a dozen of us who have uh, specific geographic mandates. The Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in North Korea, uh, in Cambodia, in Myanmar, and myself, the Special Rapporteur with respect to the situation of human rights in the, in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967. So we're appointed for six-year terms, as you, as you mentioned. It's not a paying job. Um, so as a result of that, most of us keep our day jobs and, and the vast bulk of the special rapporteurs uh, that I've worked with over the years are university professors like myself. It, it's because um, they have already developed an expertise in the particular area for which they're appointed uh, by the UN, uh, but also it's because um, teaching jobs at a university are generally flexible enough that allow you to devote the three or four months a year that it takes uh, in order to be able to do your work. And what is the work then? My, um, Marilyn has mentioned that I, I've delivered reports. I delivered two reports a year over the six years. Um, one in the spring to the Human Rights Council in Geneva, one in the fall of every year to the third committee of the General Assembly uh, in New York. And I've always chosen a, a particular theme for my, uh, my reports. I've issued reports on the right to development, uh, in Palestine on collective punishment, <clears throat> on the right to natural resources, um, on um, uh, international accountability and uh, on illegal occupation. And my most recent and last report, which I issued and delivered in March of 2022 was on apartheid and whether it exists in the occupied Palestinian territory. My work also means that I'm constantly dealing with diplomats, with political decision makers and with civil society. Um, I appear, uh, this is uh, Marilyn just before this began, asked me how many interviews I've done uh, over the six years. And it probably is in the range of about um, uh, 150 to 200 um, of these kinds of conversations that, that I've had as side events at uh, in Geneva, New York, um, or uh, many of them virtually um, over the past, particularly over the past two years. Um, so I'm, I hope to be able to use all kinds of methods to be able to communicate the messages that, that come out of my reports um, to a global audience, to civil society, to diplomats, to politicians, to the media, and to anybody else who cares to listen uh, to the issue. Um, so that in, 
in, in a long-winded way, I guess, is, is an explanation of what a, a special rapporteur does and what my work in particular winds up doing. From the, from the six years that you've had, what can you generalize about in terms of strategy? What you see that works, that doesn't work, that mm -hmm. it feels like such an eventful time. How do you sum it up? Sure. I, I'm sometimes asked, um, you know, isn't this a depressing uh, uh, special rapporteur mandate to wind up having? And I, I can remember that when I first, a month and a half into my appointment, I remember going to my very first meeting of special rapporteurs in June of 2016. And a very prominent special rapporteur, um, in fact, he's Australian, um, a, a notable expert in international human rights laws, congratulate me on becoming special rapporteur with respect to Palestine, uh, and then said, you know, Michael, you've probably got the toughest position of all. And I just felt so deflated after hearing that. But I, my sense is, and, and this is certainly true, I think, with most of the, of the special rapporteurs I've worked, I think every one of us wakes up with, with a sense of optimism. Um, we know what the law is. We know what human rights requires in, with our, each of our particular mandates. And for me, you know, it, it, um, it meant knowing that, uh, that the law is on the right side of history with respect to um, the Israeli occupation of, uh, of Palestine. It meant that those very brave, courageous, uh, outspoken advocates, uh, Israelis, Palestinians, and internationals uh, who speak through the medium of civil society and human rights organizations, um, that they are the ones who really feel the blunt end of, uh, uh, of the criticism that winds up occurring uh, with respect to this. Um, I should point out that as Special Rapporteur, the obligation of any uh, member of the United Nations is to allow Special Rapporteurs or to invite Special Rapporteurs uh, into the territory to be able to conduct their particular work. Um, I consistently wrote to the government of Israel to allow me into um, Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory during the six years of my mandate. And uh, I, I heard crickets back. Uh, they refused me to uh, entry into uh, Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory. And that's not simply personal to me. Um, my immediate, my, one of my immediate predecessors, Richard Falk, a very prominent American uh, international human rights lawyer, um, who was special rapporteur between 2008 and 2014, was also refused entry. And I'm expecting that my, my successor, uh, Francesca Albanese, um, will also be uh, uh, find difficulty in trying to get into Israel and the occupied territory as well. So in, in terms of um, uh, your answering your question, Marilyn, I guess my, my point would be, um, this was, has been an, an incredibly enriching experience. I was told by Richard Falk when I took it, he said, look, there are basically two things you have to keep in mind. And I say this to you because I think this is what it's important for civil society organizations who do work on Israel and Palestine to keep in mind, whether you're working in the Jewish community, whether you're working in the, uh, in the Arab, Muslim, or Palestinian communities, or whether you're working in the, obviously, um, to try to create a bigger message for you, the societies that you live in. And that is this, the first issue is to be bold and straightforward. Uh, Albert Camus, uh, once said that uh, calling things by the wrong names only adds to the affliction of the world. And I think, you know, it's, it's a duty of all of us to be able to say, this is what's happening in Israel and, uh, and Palestine. But the second thing to keep in mind in order to be effective as well um, is to be responsible. You got to find the right tone uh, to be able to speak uh, to, to your own communities, 
uh, and to the uh, and to government decision makers and to diplomats and to the media uh, as well. And I think if you combine those two thoughts, you know, to be uh, to be straightforward um, and to say call things as they are, to speak truth to power, but also uh, to be responsible and try to find uh, creative ways of finding that. Um, that right message to put across to people, um, then I think you, you have the best chance of moving forward uh, and, to, and to doing your part, I guess, to contribute to finally uh, ensuring that there's peace and justice between Israelis and Palestinians. Thank you, Michael. Following on from what you mentioned about international law and what you said about being really clear and responsible about stating the facts about what you see happening. Earlier this year, you described Israelis' occupation over Palestine as an apartheid. Do you believe that states generally avoid using that word because of the legal obligations attached to it or for some other reasons? It's a mixture of things, I, I think. I mean, states do sometimes do call um, Israeli settlements uh, illegal. Um, they voted for those resolutions, um, and they probably have as part of their own foreign policy. And I'm thinking particularly of in in Europe, uh, the settlements are illegal. That hasn't stopped them, or has, uh, it hasn't meant encouraged them to to follow through on that and say ban uh, settlement goods and products from entering into the international marketplace. Um, the the effect of saying that settlements are illegal, unfortunately, remains at the rhetorical level only. So. And I, I, let me let me uh, answer your question this way. When I became special rapporteur six years ago, I um, I decided I wasn't going to use the term apartheid. It, it seemed to me to have no useful uh, aim other than to alienate uh, legal and political and diplomatic decision makers, um, and that I could work entirely within the scope of international human rights law and international humanitarian law because. There's all kinds of things that states have agreed to, but they haven't followed through on that. And within three or four years of, uh, of being a special rapporteur, I came to the conclusion that no matter how, how well, if I, if I did it well, how well my arguments were made, or how, uh, how well uh, organized my reports uh, were, uh, were composed in explaining what the law was and what states themselves had agreed to, particularly in Europe and North America, they weren't moving on this issue. And uh, at the same, but at the same time, I was coming to that conclusion that, you know, the um, this 50 plus years of occupation was now becoming indistinguishable from annexation. It also was a it was a time when, uh, beginning two years ago, when uh, adding to the the longstanding voices of Palestinians saying we live under an apartheid regime, that Israeli and uh, international human rights organizations were now issuing comprehensive well-argued, uh, well-sourced uh, reports saying that this is apartheid. It's either apartheid in the West Bank, it's apartheid in the Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, or it's apartheid in, in the entire territory between the river and the sea. Um, and those reports influenced uh, me deeply to come to the conclusion that I have to address uh, the question of apartheid, which is what I did in my 12th and last report in, uh, in March. And I was lucky to be able to build upon uh, these these fulsome reports uh, that had been issued by Palestinians, by Israelis, uh, and by the international community, um, and you know, I, to me, it, it just becomes a lot easier to be able to say uh, these words apartheid. And the arguments I've heard back um, that rejecting these reports or or rejecting my report 
generally are very thin. Either you know the, the call has been, well, you're an anti-Semite for for saying that, which I think is virtually no argument at all, because they they never tackle the the, the depth and the um, and the analysis and the law that is that is the pillars uh, of of these reports. And this becomes, I think, probably just a very ugly shorthand and I must say lazy way of uh, of being able to answer. Uh, the, the very real facts on the ground and the dy dynamic reality that's going on there. Another argument back is, um, well, this it's not useful. Whether or not it really is apartheid in the occupied Palestinian territories or between the river and the sea, we don't think it's useful. It only drives people apart. Um, you know, but as I said, you know, quoting Camus, you know, if um, if the situation is that there are seven hundred thousand. Israeli Jews living in Jewish community, Jewish only communities in occupied territory with full political citizen legal rights, uh, living uh, in the same geographic and political unit uh, as uh, as over three million Palestinians in in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Uh, add to that the other two million uh, uh, Palestinians barricaded in in uh, Gaza. Um, if if they live with, with entirely separate rights political and legal rights uh, living in, in, this, in the same uh, geographic unit, then, then find me a better word than apartheid, uh, and I'll, I will happily use it um, if you can prove that, uh, that it actually conforms with the law. Um, so I, I find these second range of arguments, which certainly comes from my government, that it's just not a useful term uh, because it only drives people apart. You know, if that actually is the reality on the ground, uh, and that can be stated over and over again through the use of, uh, of international law, um, then I think you're right in, in the question that you pose. It, it actually would compel governments to do something if this was apartheid, given uh, what uh, the international community has said over the last 60 some years with respect to the utter illegality of apartheid culminating in the 1998 Rome Statute on the International Criminal Court, which said apartheid is actually a crime against humanity, one of the most serious of crimes that can be committed in international law. Uh, following that report, uh, you did an interview with Mondo Weiss. Mm -hmm. And you said the phrase that I suspect will be attached to your signature for a long time. Uh, you referred to the fever dream of settler colonialism. Yes. And I wonder if that was just, you know, a blurt that you'd been waiting a long time to say, or do you really feel that it's moving into a different phase? And, and what's this phase? Sure. Uh, that very good question, Marilyn. It actually, that uh, I took that phrase, that, that was a phrase that I wrote in, in, in my report. Um, and what I was saying there was that, you know, essentially, uh, what we've learned over the last 70 years, and one of the most, probably one of the two or three most important developments of the 20th century, uh, beginning in the 1950s, obviously was the uh, decolonization of, of, the, of, uh, of most of the developing world, freedom from empire, uh, freedom from imperial rule. Um, and in, in a number of countries um, uh, built upon empire was settler colonialism. Certainly the country I come from, um, we are now discussing this seriously. Um, as a term and as a method and as an analysis. And I'm sure that this is happening in New Zealand and Australia as, uh, as well. Um, these are classic cases of settler colonialism. So is South Africa, so is the United States. Um, and then the question arises, is, is settler colonialism an appropriate term to use with respect to Israel and Palestine? 
And I haven't done a report on this issue, but I know that there has risen up a, an argument in the midst of all of these reports being released on apartheid that um, the issue of settler colonialism in the instance of uh, Israel and Palestine has been downplayed. And if you like, that's my, I suppose, my very tiny contribution uh, that I think settler colonialism is a useful term. It is something that we should be exploring. I know that it is growing in the academic literature and I suspect my, uh, that uh, you'll see um, settler colonialism being addressed by my successor uh, at some point as well. Um, why is uh, settler colonialism an, uh, an appropriate term to at least consider applying with respect to Israel and Palestine? Is that like any other settler co uh, colonizing uh, project, what it meant was there, there was a indigenous people, Palestinians, who've lived there for uh, probably as a people for 1300 years um, in terms of being an Arab people, um, and a movement arose, uh, Zionism, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, which actually identified in its roots with the colonial movement. Um, uh, Zionism uh, wind up attracting uh, a significant number of European Jews over the next several decades as the answer to the extraordinary predicament that they faced through the rise of fascism, the rise of anti the intensification of anti-Semitism, and ultimately the Holocaust. Um, to, for many European Jews and for many Jews elsewhere, the Zionism seemed to be the answer. We can no longer live in Europe. It's no longer safe to us. We have to find some other homeland. Some would have chosen to immigrate to, to North America. Others in, in significant numbers chose to, uh, chose to go to uh, Palestine either in the 20s and 30s or after this, immediately after the Second World War. And then uh, in turn, more numbers came after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. Um, but it's impossible to understand Zionism, uh, I think, without understanding the impact it had upon the indigenous people of, uh, of Palestine. Um, and if, if Zionism in its creation and in its, uh, its formative years in the 1920s and 1930s strongly identified as being a colonial movement, and those terms are actually used by some of the, uh, by some of the leaders and, uh, and uh, intellectuals um, in, those, uh, in those decades, and I think we have to take, wind up taking that seriously. Uh, and in the end, what it meant was uh, a salvation for Jews, predominantly European Jews, um, and then uh, for Sephardic Jews coming from uh, Arab lands uh, in the aftermath of, uh, of the establishment of the State of Israel. But it meant a disaster for, uh, for the Palestinians. And I'm, in fact, I was just reading today, interestingly enough, um, an excerpt from the, the uh, Maisky Diaries. Um, uh, Igor uh, Mauski uh, was the uh, Soviet ambassador to Britain between 1932 and 1943, a hugely influential figure. And his, his, uh, his diaries were discovered about a decade ago and published. Um, and I as I was reading them today, um, he encountered, he was friends with a huge number of influential um, people in Britain, in Britain in the 1930s and 1940s, including Hein Weizmann. Uh, one of the intellectual founders of Zionism and, and the first president of Israel. And Weizmann said, as quoted by, by Meisky in his, uh, in his diaries, you know, the solution to the European predicament of European Jews is to move five or six million European Jews to Palestine and to find another home for the million or so Palestinians who wind up, who wind up living there. So it meant population replacement. It meant the expulsion and forced transfer uh, of the indigenous people. Um, and when you think of, of how settler colonialism has impacted upon any range of societies, there's generally three, 
three approaches to it. It's, it's either meant um, uh, domination, or it's meant extermination, or it's meant expulsion. Um, and in and with any of those cases, uh, it has been a disaster for the uh, for the, the, the indigenous population in North America and South America, uh, in Australia and New Zealand and in, and in Africa as well. And I think we have to understand the phenomena that occurred over the last 120 years in Israel and Palestine as being part of the same movement. I want to ins I want to insist that doesn't mean that the uh, you know, the 7 million uh, Israeli Jews who live there today are illegitimate or don't have it, the right to continue to live there. There's been in this whole process the creation of a new people, an Israeli Jewish people um, who have rights uh, to be able to live there. But what it means is we have to figure out in a creative way um, how, to, how to, to encourage 14 million uh, Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews to live in structures of equality uh, with each other. No other system is going to wind up working. That means either a genuine two-state solution or it means, means a one-state democratic solution. Um, that's for the parties to wind up deciding in the end, but it has to have as its cornerstone human rights, equality, and democracy. So how might you suggest that activists or even people who wouldn't necessarily label themselves as activists, but read your findings, read the reports with Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and others, and really see the situation and want to be part of making that change. How might you suggest that they put pressure on the governments to hold, to, to, to bring about the equality mm -hmm. that you speak of? Sure. Um, I say this as a lawyer um, um, right off the bat, is that international human rights law and international law in general and human rights law in particular is the one human um, um, instrument that we've made together um, that represent the very best aspirations of the seven and a half million people, billion people that live on this planet. Um, and that's what we should be relying upon. Um, international law has a lot to say with respect to Israel and Palestine. It's one of the great paradoxes of Israel and Palestine is that the international community has probably passed more resolutions uh, uh, than on any other single conflict than with, than with regards to Israel and Palestine. The framework for how this ought to be settled has been so well laid out through these hundreds of UN resolutions from the Security Council, the General Assembly, and the, uh, and the, and, uh, and the Human Rights Council. Um, but the great paradox is for all of that law that's been created and all of those resolutions that have been adopted, um, they've not moved the needle very much at all in terms of active protect, protection for the Palestinians, let alone uh, giving them a, a viable path to self-determination, which is what the international community keeps on promising to them. So if I was to give, a, I guess, give advice as to how people in solidarity organizations or in associations that, that advocate for Palestinians uh, and Israelis uh, who, are, who are generally seeking uh, peace, um, peace bit built on equality. Um, I would say use the law. I mean, the, the slogan that someone said to me last month when I was in Dublin was law, not war. And law is not meant only for lawyers. Lawyers may have a hand in creating it, but I think they're only the tools for building these, you know, of, of trying to um, articulate what are the aspirations of everybody who wants to be able to live with the right to water, the right to food, the right to housing, the right to self-determination, which includes obviously um, Palestinians and Israelis. The, the, 
the, why this is an effective tool in any kind of campaign or advocacy is that virtually every government in the world, including New Zealand and Australia, have signed up to this. They voted for these resolutions or they're bound by these resolutions from these three decision-making bodies of the uh, of the United Nations. So it's actually asking, you're not asking something new from, from your governments. You're actually asking them to, to uh, commit to what they've already agreed to uh, through the framework of international human rights law and international humanitarian law. What is that? The settlements are illegal and they have to be dismantled. Um, the uh, annexation is illegal. It has been since 1945, including the annexation of East Jerusalem and the de facto annexation that's ongoing with respect to uh, uh, the West Bank. That the blockade of, of, uh, of Gaza and its two uh, plus million Palestinians who live there is, a, is, a, is, is collective punishment, which is absolutely forbidden under the Fourth Geneva Convention. These are all laid out, not simply in my reports, but in a whole host of uh, advocacy, which is easy to find on, uh, on the internet. So I guess I'm, you know, if you speak in the language of equality and democracy and human rights and are able to base that on international law and uh, and what all governments have agreed to then i think you've got incredibly powerful tools that that are going to be unanswerable by the diplomatic and political leaders that you're uh, you're speaking to uh, before i uh, asked my question, I want to just remind participants that we're also happy for your questions if you would write them in the Q&A. In this, in this struggle to extend our identification and our caring uh, into this issue, to, to really make it something intolerable that the mainstream of our political uh, body feels a need to respond to, it seems to me that our environment should be, our, our working operating environment should be changed by what's going on in the Ukraine. Here we have this global moment of activism, this indignation that is couched in law and human rights. Um, so far, we're not really seeing the needle move here. I wonder what you observe and how we might use this moment not to create a hierarchy of suffering, but to extend our concern. I like the way you've put that question, Marilyn, because in when it occurred, at the, now uh, at the end of February, three months ago, um, I, but many others, made the, uh, the parallel uh, between uh, the, uh, the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine and the occupation of Ukrainian territory um, and the application of international law and the 55-year-old occupation uh, by Israel of the uh, of the Palestinian territory and the application of international law uh, there as well. Um, the two, uh, uh, those who support the occupation or defend the occupation don't want to make those comparisons and don't want to listen to those who do make those comparisons, but I think they're inevitable with respect to this. Um, international law is not meant to be an umbrella that folds up at the first sign of rain. You know, it is, uh, it is uh, applicable everywhere. International law is not a menu a la carte that you can pick and choose which applies to you. International law, like, like, uh, like domestic law, applies to everybody. And in a democracy, it applies to everybody equally. So if international law says it's wrong to annex territory, if international law says it's wrong to uh, 
conquer and go, go across your borders with the aim of overthrowing other governments. If international law winds up saying human rights are essential to our modern world order and must be obeyed by all governments, then that applies equally to Israel as it does to uh, Russia in Ukraine um, or Morocco in uh, Western Sahara or Turkey in Northern uh, Cyprus. These are all occupations that have been longstanding. When we, I, I want to do. I want to point out something to to, uh, to your listening audience. One is that um, uh, occupation is not necessarily illegal. You know, occupations do occur that are lawful, such as uh, the Americans in Japan after the Second World War, or the Western powers in Germany after the Second World War. But both of those occupations ended after about eight to ten years, and that's generally the length, the, the absolute maximum length that the world today would tolerate as a lawful occupation. Um, anything longer and the occupying power has to justify why it's, uh, why it's continuing and maintaining that occupation. Israel has no justification for a 55 year old occupation um, other uh, than to say, this is not an occupation. Israel is a, has got a, a lone solitary voice in denying that international law winds up applying to the occupied uh, Palestinian territories or that the Fort Geneva Convention applies, or that it has any responsibilities with respect to the, to the Palestinian people. The, the vast bulk of the international community, whether or not they act upon it, at least agrees rhetorically that international law does apply. The Fort Geneva Convention is the applicable document as well as human rights law uh, to that. This is not the case of Israel being a, uh, a honest, uh, having an honest disagreement with the world. This is an acquisitive occupying power that is seeking to take territory uh, illegitimately and, and illegally, and certainly contrary to UN Security Council resolutions, which is the highest body that we have in the international system uh, with respect to decision making. So, you know, there are good re there are reasons we understand political reasons as to why you won't find a resolution at the Security Council with respect to Russia because it's a permanent member and it has a veto power. But there are th more than 30 resolutions passed critical of the Israeli occupation beginning uh, from the Security Council beginning in the late 1970s that the United States either voted for or allowed to pass through by, uh, by abstaining and not using uh, its veto. Um, so those are the hallmark in which, which we begin. So if international law applies with respect to Russia in, in Ukraine, it applies just as equally with respect to Israel and Palestine. Thank you, Michael. Earlier, you mentioned um, dealing with negative comments, insults and attacks from various people who want to undermine your work and undermine those who stand up for the rights of Palestinians. And we've had a question um, from the audience is how best to respond to accusations of anti-Semitism when advocating for Palestinian human rights? Sure. Look, there's, there, I think there's two parts uh, to, to an answer to that. And the first, the first is anti-Semitism exists. Anti-Semitism exists in, in most societies uh, where there are, are Jews. In fact, probably in societies where uh, there aren't many Jews uh, that are left. Uh, and it's important because if, if we're supporting Palestinians, um, then, we're, then we're against anti-Palestinian racism, but we're also against racism uh, and discrimination of all sorts, including against Jews. So I, um, I think we have to make that uh, that very clear, and we have to know, you know, what is a a um, an honest, applicable definition of anti-Semitism, because 
too often, certainly in the work that I do, but in the work that most human rights organizations do uh, with respect to Israel and Palestine, anti-Semitism, as I said before, becomes a lazy um, uh, and abusive uh, attack um, on uh, on those who are trying to do work, which 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 hurts me in, in the sense that uh, if you're advocating to end suffering of people and you raise the issue of the suffering of Palestinians and the answer back is you're an anti-Semite for raising that, or yeah, I'm, I'm hearing echoes of a, of a form of racism against Jews by you raising that, then I've got to say that's not an honest argument uh, coming back. Um, there are, I'm sure there are elements, uh, outlier elements with respect to those who profess um, solidarity with Palestinians um, who perhaps harbor anti-Semitic uh, anti uh, thoughts or feelings or, uh, or comments with respect to those. And they should have no part uh, with respect to the struggle for justice because the struggle for justice uh, actually means using the same laws to apply to, uh, to everyone. So I, I guess my, 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 my conclusion with respect to this is don't, don't let that scare you. Um, because many good people uh, who are um, uh, who hold international human rights uh, at the very heart of the work that they do have been called anti-Semitic for their comments and for their advocacy with respect to Palestine, who are not anti-Semitic. You're joining, if, if you're called in a lazy way an anti-Semite for doing this work, you're joining a, actually a, a pretty big community uh, of people. But equally, you should be uh, you should be ready to respond if there are actually genuine uh, anti-Semitic comments being made uh, in any of the advocacy being done on behalf of Palestinians. But Palestinians themselves, many Palestinians themselves, who are certainly the ones who are who are working in human rights organizations, say um, that does not do us any good at all by denying or minimizing the Holocaust by uh, by having inflated. Um, uh, views with respect to who Jews are or what they uh, uh, or what they may wind wind up doing, uh, that doesn't lead to the kind of equality and respect for human rights that many Palestinians and many Israelis uh, are are advocating. And the last thing I'll I'll say is, you know, there's nothing that I've said, and I'm sure nothing that your organization has said, with respect to either the facts on the ground in the occupied Palestinian territory or the applicable law. Uh, to or the applicable UN resolutions to it, that Israeli Jewish organizations are not saying as well. They're attacked and marginalized in their own society. Um, but they, the, the great thing and I, about this human rights work that's going on is that Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs are speaking the very same language of human rights and are, are being motivated by that in order to be able to address all of the abuses of the occupation. Thank you. And I would add, uh, as part of an international group that includes an Israeli Jewish group, it's quite interesting to look up uh, their website. They're called um, Boycott from Within, Israeli Citizens Against the Occupation. And, and they have a really strong statement to make about being allowed to speak this way. Another question from the audience. Um, we hear a lot. Uh, we have a, sorry, this continuous failure of international structures to uphold the law with regards to Palestine and the Palestinians. So how do you respond to people who have come to believe that violence and power are the only way to change the status quo? That's a real question. 
Yeah, it's it's an important question, and, and of course, come, I coming at it as a as a as a, uh, as a lawyer, as a law professor, as someone uh, who works within the realm of international human rights and humanitarian law, it's I often will will make the argument to diplomatic and political decision makers is if you don't uh, want to want to say the only avenue left to those that are oppressed, that those are suffering. Uh, under a, a, a regime of systematic discrimination um, is violence, then you have to take the laws that you've created and the international rules-based order that you support and the resolutions that you've adopted at the United Nations seriously and actually raise the issues of accountability. This occupation is not going to die of old age. This occupation will not end until there is a concerted effort by the international community uh, to raise and probably substantially raise the cost to Israel for continuing to deep, maintain and deepen the occupation. And that means using these tools of international law. You know, that I think the dichotomy is, is quite clear. Either we're going to resolve this as peacefully as we can uh, through the tools of diplomacy and through the, uh, uh, and through the guidance and the North Star of human rights and humanitarian law, or you're going to continue to let it degenerate uh, into uh, into violence, where you find uh, these um, uh, attacks on Palestinians by uh, by Israeli military, and some and sometimes a response by Palestinians of attacking individual um, uh, Israeli civilians. Uh, none of that is helpful. None of that builds the kind of trust that you want to be able to see. That's going to guide. Uh, these two peoples towards a more prosperous and, and egalitarian future. But unless and until you actually use these, these plentiful tools of international law to use issues like accountability uh, on Israel, um, then, you're, then you shouldn't be surprised when there's this, this warranted, uh, unwarranted uh, violence uh, keeps on breaking out. I want to point out that in, in terms of issues of terror, because I'm often asked this question, um, you know, terror, terrorism is a uh, is a fallacious tool uh, to be able to use, and I've said that to Palestinians, um, and most certainly the Palestinians working in civil society agree with me. They have put their trust and they put their efforts with respect to the framework of international law. Um, Palestinians uh, organizations, there are Palestinian political organizations that do advocate terror or uh, or violence, and I think. You know, that's wrong tactically, it's wrong morally, and it's wrong legally. It's wrong tactically because Israel has um, is so much more powerful uh, militarily and it conflicts so much more damage in return to Palestinians. Uh, the UN has, has issued figures that since 2008, over 6,000 Palestinians have died as a result of Israeli violence and around 270 uh, Israelis and foreigners have died as a, as a result of Palestinian violence, which is a ratio of around 22 to one. So the, uh, the application of violence is asymmetrical uh, in this case. But if we, were to, if we are to do make our best efforts to ensure that violence has no role, then we have to push these decision makers uh, into, into form and to say accountability has to be the key issue here. And uh, I sometimes puzzle audiences when I say, you know, I wanna to talk to you about the A word now, and they're expecting me to speak about a, uh, apartheid as I, as I will have asked, but I say the real A word is accountability. The reason why I've come to the conclusion that this is apartheid, the reason why I've issued a previous report saying that the occupation has become illegal under international law is to force the international community, particularly Europe and North America and Oceania uh, to, uh, to take the terms of accountability seriously. Um, if, uh, if you think that simply repeating the mantra 
of a two-state solution while doing nothing to be able to preserve it or, or to make it happen is going to lead to the kind of future we all want to see, then you're sadly mistaken. And to be able to keep on seeing two states as a substitute for any kind of action, you know, criticism without accountability, um, uh, it becomes uh, unbelievable after a while and becomes not a tool to be able to advance us. Basically, we have two tools in front of us. The international community really relies upon real politique. And it basically relies upon the fact that Israel militarily, diplomatically, economically, and politically um, has far more tools uh, and far more power than the Palestinians with respect to this. And that's the continued failed framework we have from the Madrid-Oslo process from 30 years ago. It keeps on repeating this real politique of, of, of actually acknowledging and replicating the uh, asymmetrical power on the ground. Your other alternative is international law and a rights-based approach. And that's what I advocate, and that's what most uh, human rights organizations, Israeli, Palestinian, uh, and international, wind up advocating. We have to put our anchor into human rights law, into international law, into humanitarian law, international criminal law, uh, and use those principles, because those, I think, reach the best of us, and those have the best hope of, of minimizing this terrible asymmetry of power between Israelis and Palestinians. Another question from the audience about neighboring nations. Um, they've asked, what is the dynamic at play that sees immediate neighboring nations of Israel signing peace and trade agreement, agreements without consideration or conditions on Israel to withdraw from Palestinian occupied territory? Um, and they've mentioned, for example, the role that Jordan could play. Sure. Um... Egypt signed a peace agreement in, 1970, in 1979, um, Jordan signed a peace agreement in 1994, and more recently there's been the so-called Abraham Accords uh, that were created during the last year of the Trump administration uh, that has seen Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and I believe Sudan uh, sign these agreements to recognize Israel and to create trade and, uh, and economic relations with them. Um, the Biden administration will say this is helpful, this is good, it's not a substitute for, uh, for a final peace agreement between uh, Israel and, uh, and the Palestinians. Um, I agree with that, other than I think that these Arab countries themselves, I think, are deceiving or self-deceiving themselves that they think that by, um, by creating these diplomatic uh, trade and, uh, and military relations with Israel, that it's going to hasten a peace in the Middle East. Um, they have to show the evidence that that's happening. And over the last years, the last two years since the Abraham Accords were launched, I believe in August of 2020, we've seen the, in 2021, we've seen the highest number of Palestinian deaths by Israel, by Israel since 2014. We've seen the highest number of settler uh, attacks on Palestinians and their property in 2021 than we've seen since the statistics first began to be kept in 2012. We've seen a rise in, in, uh, in, uh, Palestinian home demolitions by uh, by Israel. We've seen 20 to 25,000 more settlers per year going into the occupied territories. All of the evidence, all of the signs are that this occupation continues to thicken, to deepen. And uh, it, it, I think that those who advocate for a two-state solution have the onus on them to show how that is possible with the continued growth of, uh, uh, of these settlements. We now have over 300 settlements in Israel and, uh, sorry, in uh, occupied East Jerusalem and, uh, and the West Bank, with settler, with, with settler population growing by 100,000 every four years. Who can't do their math and says, 
and, and come to the conclusion that that means an end to a two-state solution. And another question uh, about real politic. Um, how significant do you think uh, American use of Israel is as a, a point player to protect their big business and security interests? Mm -hmm. America seems unmovable on this matter. Why? Sure. Yeah. In, in, in his um, 2011 uh, memoirs called Interventions, Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, remarked upon the, uh, the passivity, uh, the remarkable passivity, in his words, of the Security Council <laughs> towards Israel in, in contrast to uh, other conflicts that were going on at the time, including in particular, he compared it to the Security Council's actions with respect to Syria. But he went on to say a, a leading cont uh, con contributing reason as to why the Security Council was so passive when it comes to uh, Israel and Palestine is the role of the, of the United States. And I believe, you know, it's, it, I think it's fairly easy to lay out. There's been so much written about uh, the relationship between the United States and, and Israel. It gives a, a country which has a European standard of living of, I think the GDP per capita of Israel in 2020 was $44,000 per capita American. Um, it, but it gives it $3.8 billion in aid, uh, mostly military aid annually, of which Israel is, to, is required to spend some of that uh, aiding uh, American military uh, industry. Um, this, this is the uh, entirely unique relationship diplomatically, militarily, and, uh, and politically. And Israel has become obviously an important issue domestically. Um, in his memoirs uh, uh, in 2020, Barack Obama said, there is no other country in the world where, where I, as a president, in trying to make a, a rational or sound foreign policy decision, would face a domestic blowback as it is with Israel. I would never face that, he says, with any foreign policy issue that I had to make with respect to Canada, Russia, China, Britain, France, Europe. Um, so there is a unique relationship that is symbiotic, um, and it has to do uh, in part um, with, uh, with very strong organizations in the United States that defend the occupation. Some of them Jew Jewish organizations, some of them uh, Christian Zionist uh, organizations. And yet you, when you look at polling done in Canada, in the United States, in, uh, in Europe, you'll, found that, you'll find that despite you know, any sustained critical review in say the mainstream American press or Canadian press or European press, that uh, in most of these countries, um, there is at least either an equal division or there was a, uh, a, a stronger uh, polling among recipients saying they support Palestinian rights than those who would wind up defending Israel. So it's a matter of tapping into what most people are actually seeing and can't unsee when they, when they read stories with respect to the assassination of the Al Jazeera journalist or the attack on her funeral several days later. It's hard to unsee that once you've uh, actually begun, begun to see that. So it, there is a, to, to, my, to my view, there is a considerable daylight between where popular opinion is and where elite political uh, diplomatic uh, opinion is uh, in most of the Western European and North American and perhaps oceanic uh, countries are. 
So a question might be, is this uh, an issue specific to the US? Um, and it links with a question from the audience that says, what do you think drives the inaction by political leaders the world over? Is it the same well, that's, thing? That's, that's a huge question. I mean, it, um, obviously, the, the relationship that Israel has with the United States is by far the single most important relationship uh, that it has in order to be able to protect it diplomatically, militarily, um, uh, and economically. Um, European countries would probably be willing to take a stronger stance against Israel if it were not for wanting to protect their relationship with the United States. Um, certainly, we see within the European Union a division um, among countries there. On the one hand, uh, you have uh, some Eastern European countries, and particularly Hungary, but also at times uh, the Czech Republic or, Slo or Slovenia or Poland, um, who take positions uh, within the European Union very much supportive of, of Israel. On the other end of the spectrum, there are countries like uh, Ireland or Luxembourg or Belgium uh, that take positions that are, uh, or Norway that take positions that are, uh, uh, we could probably say are quite supportive of, uh, of Palestinian rights and, and meaningfully so. I was in Ireland for a week at the beginning of April um, at the end of my role as Special Rapporteur. And I was astonished to see there are seven parties in the Irish Parliament, the Irish Doyle. Uh, and uh, for, all, for six of them, they have extremely strong um, uh, uh, platforms with respect to Palestinian rights. For them, Palestine is actually a vote getter among the Irish uh, population. But Irish is a, is a uh, you know, Ireland is, a, is one small country within, the, within Europe. And while it has some influence beyond its borders and has done some progressive things in terms of resolutions coming from uh, the, the Irish parliament, um, and it sits now on the, uh, on the Security Council, um, it, um, its role is minimal. In, in terms of uh, my own country, again, I think, as I said, with respect to the United States, polling here would show probably a sympathy towards the Palestinians among general population, but it's not deep. Uh, and it means that for for uh, uh, for political decision makers, there's not a huge amount of pressure on them uh, to, to take uh, stances that are in favor of, of action against Israel for continuing to deepen the occupation. Hmm. We are seeing here a real generational change. We're enjoying here a real generational change and our partner group Justice for Palestine is a big part of that. That is, a next generation cohort of Palestinians speaking about their own lives. I wonder from within the United Nation with respect to your position or your former position or others, when do you think Palestinians will be able to speak as of right in positions like yours? Well, you know, if I can, if I can alter the question slightly, because I think this is what it's driving at. You know, how useful or how important is the United Nations with respect to the articulation of Palestinian rights? And I, I, I would have, I guess, two answers to that. At its very best, you know, the United Nations is the forum uh, and provides the agencies which which help to articulate and uh, and try to protect to its best. Uh, efforts possible, Palestinian rights. I think of uh, UNRWA, the UN agency uh, for, for Palestinian refugees. Uh, I think of the resolutions that are adopted in the, um, particularly in the UN Human Rights Council and the creation of this permanent commission of inquiry last, uh, last summer by the Human Rights Council 
to be able to look at the root causes with respect to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, at times when the General Assembly passes its, its basket of re resolutions every uh, every December, in terms of my, you know, the role that I played as special rapporteur, um, are, uh, there are the United Nations is where Palestinian rights are able to be articulated according to human rights and according to international law. Unfortunately, the, U, the U, uh, United Nations isn't always acting at its very best. Uh, the problems with what I've mentioned before with respect to the Security Council and the uh, permanent veto that the United States has and its willingness to use that. It's uh, vetoed over 40 resolutions since the early 1970s uh, with respect to uh, um, uh, stances critical of Israel. It's the only um, security, permanent Security Council member that's ever used its veto uh, with respect to a resolution critical of, uh, of Israel. So Israel knows that it can wind up, uh, it, it can endure and it can absorb, if you like, the toothache of having to go to the dentist every once in a while because of the criticism at the, uh, in the international community. But it knows that it's not going to pay a price because the, the United States will wind up uh, backing it. So, so the, the UN is often, unfortunately, not at its very best. Um, and it, uh, the issue of accountability, uh, the issue of, uh, of calling Israel to account for uh, its violations of the Fourth Geneva Convention, or um, the issue of Article 25, I'll raise it with you, of the uh, Charter of the United Nations adopted in 1945, which says every member state of the United Nations agrees to, uh, to apply resolutions adopted by the security, or decisions made by the Security Council. And yet Israel is in violation of uh, more, than uh, more than 30 resolutions passed with respect to its occupation and faces no consequences uh, with regards to this. So this is the dilemma of working within uh, the UN system. Uh, you, you do have the platform to be able to articulate, you know, new and better frameworks with respect to Israel and Palestine. But on the other hand, um, you have to accept, no, you don't have to accept, but you have to regret uh, and push against uh, the fact that uh, very little accountability Will wind up flowing from that unless you make it. If I can just say one last thing, um, I am by profession a labor lawyer. Uh, that's what I went to law school for and I worked as a labor lawyer for about a dozen years before I became uh, a law professor. And there's a very famous piece of labor legislation that was passed in the 1930s through the US uh, Congress. And trade unions had fought long and hard for that. And they went to um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the president, president he, he said, I support you. I support you in this. I, I know what you're saying, but you have to make me do it. And that's what I think uh, we have to keep in mind with respect to uh, uh, all political and, uh, and diplomatic leaders. And there's another very famous say, saying that we all probably know that Martin Luther King says the arc of justice, uh, uh, the, the arc of history uh, tends towards justice. Um, or bends towards justice. And then, but we all know that, but then the, the Reverend Jesse Jackson said, uh, and I think this is the most important thing, but we've got to make it bend. It won't bend by itself. So that's what I think we have to keep in mind uh, with any kind of struggle is that we have to play the long game. You have to have and create strategic patience in order to be able to win justice step by step. Um. We have another question from the audience. The international boycott of South Africa is effective in dismantling apartheid. Do you support the BDS movement to pressure and highlight Israel's determination to ignore accountability to Palestinian human rights? 
nothing else is going to work but accountability. I, I call them accountability measures. Others call them BDS. Um, I, as a, I, as a special rapporteur, said I, I, I took no position in favor or against BDS other than to say it's a it's nonviolent and it's a form of expression. Therefore, it should be defended in, in those cases. But I don't see any other way of, uh, of accomplishing justice for Israelis and Palestinians, except through accountability measures like boycotts or, or sanctions. Um, there has to be accountability and it's going to have to come from civil society. Civil society is going to have to be, if you like, the new international superpower uh, with respect on this and on other social justice issues. You know, why are we now um, working so hard to be to achieve goals with respect to climate change and try to slow down climate change, except for the fact that we have a better and more informed um, uh, civil population that agrees with us. They've become the, the change makers with respect to climate change and the environment. The same thing is true with respect to Israel and Palestine. Thank you. And I'm sorry, we have uh, unanswered questions um, that we don't have time to get to. And I'm just going to ask one last question and then Laura will wind up. I feel like your last comments have been leading in this direction, but I want to draw it out. Your mission was to work through the UN, and yet you were constantly in the position of saying that the UN was declining to respect its own resolutions and international law. I'm guessing that this is also a part of your upcoming book with Richard Falk. I wonder if you could give us some hints about that book. Sure. Um, it's actually with Richard Falk and John Dugard, who was uh, Richard Falk's predecessors. The three of us um, have, through Richard's leadership, um, are putting together a book which includes excerpts from um, our various reports that we submitted over the last 20 years to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly, along with our own observations, individual observations as special rapporteurs, how effective was the United Nations? How effective was civil society? What were the high points of what we did as, uh, as special rapporteurs? What were our great disappointments uh, by the time we had finished our six years mandates? So those are the, uh, those are, the th those are I think, the pieces that uh, you'll find in this particular book. I'm hoping that when it gets published, you'll, that everybody who winds up laying their hands on it is going to find it to be that, that kind of, uh, of useful source. I mean, all three of us are lawyers, but all three of us, I think, have, have tried to, both in our reports and, and in what we wrote, uh, have tried to find a way of making sure that the justice that is embedded in human rights law winds up being made accessible to, uh, to all. And uh, if, if that book winds up achieving its goal of accessibility, then, uh, then we're all gonna be very happy people. Thank you, Michael. So as we draw this conversation to a close, I'd really like to start by saying a, a big thank you for your time, Michael, for joining us. It's really been a pleasure talking to you today. And um, I know that it's um, really been useful hearing your words. Thank you to everyone for joining us and for your questions. We really hope to see you in the future for similar webinars. I will now say a closing karakia. Kia whakairia tatapu. Kia watia ai tiara, kia turiki whakataha ai, kia turiki whakataha ai, homie, huie, taikie. Enjoy your days and evenings, everyone. Go well.